Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Survival were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Cameron Baird is an Australian icon, recipient of both the Medal for Gallantry and the Victoria Cross. Cam Baird was killed on 22 June 2013. For the heroic actions during which he lost his life, the corporal from the 2nd Commando Regiment became the 100th Australian to receive a Victoria Cross, the 4th Victoria Cross for Australia and the first of that order to receive it posthumously. I spoke with Cameron's father, Doug, about the life and death of his son, and how Kay and Doug have dealt with his passing going forward. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today with Doug Baird. Doug, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Alex, for for having me along. Doug, we're here to talk about your late son, Cameron, but I wanted to go back to the beginning. Where did you meet your wife, Kay? It's an interesting story. I met Kay. She was a champion ballroom dancer. And it was at one of those particular functions uh, that I actually met her. I couldn't dance for nuts. I I went along because I thought I might be able to meet a nice young lady. And uh, was immediately attracted to Kay because I thought she had lovely legs. So you two danced along, and when did you get married? We became uh, girlfriend, boyfriend, and... uh, we knew each other for probably three, three and a half, four years, and uh, we got married in uh, 1971. And where were you living at this stage? Uh, I was living in Melbourne, and um, probably about uh, five or six k's from where Kay was living. Uh, I was living in a place called Faulkner, a suburb of Faulkner, and Kay lived in Coburg. And then you, a few years later, start a young family. When is Brendan born? Brendan was actually born uh, just prior to us going to Tasmania, and we went to Tasmania at the start of uh, 1976. So Brendan was certainly born just prior to that. And then he has a younger brother come along the way about five years later. That is correct, yes. Uh, Cameron was born in in Burnie uh, in Tasmania, and uh, we lived there, uh, well, Cameron lived there for about two and a half years before we moved back to Melbourne. Can you tell me a bit more about the childhood Cam would have had growing up in Melbourne? Oh, look, Cameron had, uh, he had many friends uh, and they were very uh, wide ranging. There was uh, guys that were exceptionally good at sport. There were others that were basically bookworms and Cameron had the ability to be able to uh, mix and uh, and be friends of of both. So his friends uh, were certainly uh, across a very, very uh, broad range what subjects interested him at school? Uh, subjects that interested Cameron in, in school was obviously music, which was uh, a very strong passion of his. Uh, his obvious was sport, and I think everything else fell very, very distant, <laughs> distance away. And when you say sport, you're quite the former footy star yourself. 
Was he looking up to his father, following in his footsteps? Oh, look, I think probably from a very young age, Cameron was a Carlton supporter, uh, as was his brother, uh, as was our whole family. And um, we took Cameron to Carlton Games uh, not long after he was able to walk, and uh, he was born and bred blue supporter and uh, obviously hoped to one day play for him. And that was his first goal, his first passion to strive for, not anything military, it was football. Yes, his football was his key. He loved it. Um, and from a very young age, he won just about everything, uh, every award that was available. Um, best and fairest uh, in the competition club, best and fairest goal kicking, uh, no matter what it was, Cameron won. But his passion was certainly um, to play AFL football. And unfortunately, uh, later on there, he got he uh, suffered a very severe shoulder injury. As a, as a matter of fact, it was uh, so severe, the clubs decided they weren't quite prepared to take a, a risk on a young six foot four, you know, hundred kilo type player, and that's what uh, kept him out of the army initially too. As well was that that shoulder injury. When did you first hear, Mum, Dad, I want to join the army? I didn't hear the word Dad. It was certainly spoken to his mother um, <laughs> because I'm sure that he would have expected me to try and talk him out of it. But in listening to the conversation from his mother, what he explained to her was that he'd made his mind up. And, and I guess like all parents, uh, you want to support your child. So even though it was probably against my grain at the start, uh, I said, yep, uh, I'll support you, whatever you want to do. And once Cam finishes his basic, he is posted to the 4th Royal Australian Regiment, which is reforming as Bracket Commando. Did you have an appreciation at that period when he gets this posting that he's getting into something potentially more serious? Oh, most definitely. Uh, we knew at that particular point that um, the 4RER was um, in its last days and the 2nd uh, Commando Regiment uh, was being formed as a Special Force uh, unit. Cameron was at the right spot at the right time. He'd gone through his basic and um, was awarded most outstanding soldier. So he was put at the top of the list and uh, he was uh, given the opportunity to go to for RER at that time, knowing full well that um, it was going to rumble into a uh, special force a regiment. Is there a distinct memory of farewelling him to go off to basic before he gets to that point? Yes, there is, and it's uh, very strong in my mind, and I see it uh, time and time again. I see a young fella bowling out with all the other recruits with a very short haircut and a smile on his face, waving to all the parents standing at the roadside as they boarded the bus that was going to take them to Kapuka to start their army, army life. And is there a complimentary memory when he's off to his first deployment overseas to East Timor? Yeah, look, that was one of excitement, and I think probably uh, the excitement was mainly coming from him. I, I think his mother at that stage there wasn't totally sure. Uh, we only basically knew what we read in the paper, and uh, we were led to believe it was along the lines of peacekeeping. But the regiment did see a little bit of action. One contact was made, and uh, I think that was the one that um, Cameron missed out on personally. He wasn't on that particular patrol, and uh, I think listening to the stories of the others that were in that uh, first contact, that was something that he really wanted to do but it never the opportunity never presented itself while uh, on that particular tour to East Timor. While he's in East Timor though he does get that greater opportunity through great tragedy when 9-11 occurs. 
Do you remember where you were on that day? Yes, we do. It's uh, it's amazing. Like I think most people do. Like we were actually sitting at home, had the TV going, not taking any notice of it whatsoever. And then uh, this uh, news break came over. Initially, we didn't take a lot of notice, and we realised just what the uh, what had actually happened and uh, what possibly could be the consequences rolling on from that. And I think that's when it got our attention that uh, this could have an effect on Cameron at some stage in the near future. When did you first speak with Cameron after 9-11? Oh, look, we spoke to Cameron pretty much uh, not long after that actually happened because at that point we were able to make contact, we were able to speak on the phone quite regularly. And at that point there, I think that they were feeling that there was going to be possibly an opportunity, that this was going to lead to something more serious. Uh, At that point, nobody knew as to what to where and to how, um, but I think they had a sense that there was something coming and, and certainly something did. Well, it did. His first deployment to the Middle East is in 2003. While Kay was supportive early on, and you might have had some reservations when Cam first went into the forces, when the Iraq deployment comes up, how do both you and Kay react at that stage? Look, at that point there, there wasn't a lot about it on the news and we weren't over-concerned. We were worried about the so-called Scud missiles that was in the paper. We were a little bit worried about the possibility of uh, the gas. But apart from that, it appeared to say that uh, the combined force of America, um, Australia and, and all their allies who were going to be able to steamroll over the top of Sudan Hussein, which... Proved, out, proved to be, and uh, a lot of that focus on uh, how well the Iraqi were going to fight never materialised to anything, and uh, they, they folded like a, like a pack of cards. How were those first few conversations when Cameron was calling from the Middle East? calling home. Yeah, look, those those early calls um, were very sensitive, um, simply because that's the way the army treated it, and they were monitored, and we were basically told that uh, we couldn't say, or we couldn't ask, I should say, uh, specific questions uh, if we did, and uh, Cameron either didn't answer, or uh, the, the line was cut off, and that meant that, you know, somebody who, the person monitoring the call, had put a stop to it for 30 seconds and then we come back online again and we knew very well that that subject wasn't to be approached. So I won't delve into Cameron's time overseas too much. I've had the privilege of speaking with other Second Commando Regiment veterans, guys like Eddie Robertson, so they've given me a first-hand account of what Cameron would have been seen over there and what he would have been doing. But I am going to jump ahead to November 2007, where Cameron performs an incredibly heroic series of actions that earn him the Medal for Gallantry. When do you first hear about the medal and the actions Cam took that day? That uh, medal for gallantry was one that uh, he'd spoken to his brother about and he'd spoken to his brother along the lines of don't tell mum and dad, just keep this one to yourself because at that point it was he'd received it through the mail that uh, he was going to be put up for this particular award, the medal for gallantry, which is our third highest uh, bravery award and Cameron wasn't sure as to whether he was going to take it so it wasn't widely known um, what he was actually going to do and uh, as time went past, um, he was basically talked into it to take it on behalf of the regiment as a recognition the day that uh, that uh, Luke uh, Worsley was killed. And uh, it wasn't all about Cameron receiving the Medal for Gallantry as an individual. It was about acknowledging uh, what that group had done on that particular day and the loss of Luke and, um, and the 2nd Commando Regiment. Also, I want to take a slight step back here in that Cameron chooses to join the army because that appeals to him as a career option when footy is no longer tenable. 
Then he finds himself in the Commandos. Then he's winning quite a prestigious award as part of Action Overseas in a new era of warfare for our country. It's a dramatic escalation. Is there any other military history in the family to contextualize this, or is Cameron unique among the Bairds? No, our family has a very strong military history. Uh, my father served in World War II, and his father served in World War I. Brendan served for a short period of time as well. So Cameron, I know, had had a conversation with his grandfather. Specifically what they spoke about, I don't know. But I'm sure that probably if Cameron gained anything as to what he might expect uh, in a conflict where there's some bullets being fired at you, it uh, would have come from his grandfather. Can I go on a brief tangent here and ask what areas your grandfather and father served in, in their respective wars? Yeah, both were infantry. Um, I guess probably grunts uh, running the family and uh, dad um, served in New Guinea and um, he was uh, fighting the Japanese up there and dad uh, had a a similar situation to Cameron. that towards the end of the war there that uh, they were pushing the Japanese back and the Japanese had a pillar box, a machine gun in that particular pillar box and my father's um, patrol was held down by this gun and uh, my father stepped forward and took a grenade and crept up on this pillar box and threw the grenade into the pillar box and uh, to his amazement the Japanese grabbed the grenade threw the darn thing back out and blew him off his feet so he made a second attempt and this time he posted it nice and deep in there and uh, that was the end of the Japanese and he was put up uh, for a bravery award uh, for that particular action but uh, the war finished uh, two weeks later and the paperwork was uh, not followed through and the joy and the excitement of the war ending um, that was just lost so I'm sure that probably Cameron would have understood and would have known a little bit about that uh, which certainly would have had an impact on him at some stage I would have thought. I can imagine and what about Brendan's service was he also a grunt? No Brendan had a uh, strong passion for vehicles uh, heavy vehicles and was a driver was in um, he was based up at Aubrey Wodonga at uh, Bandiana and unfortunately uh, he was in a holding pattern there and spent over three to four months and they were doing nothing. They were sweeping the boozer out and they were cleaning the libraries and the opportunity came that uh, they could sort of like move back out and become a reservist and because there was nothing happening for him and Brendan took that option. So he's, he's uh, part of the military in that side of it was a little bit on the short side but uh, that was not due to his, uh, his wanting. It's just the way that panned out. Coming back to Cameron, I've been told anecdotally that he acquired an incredible reputation in the Special Forces world over the years. He receives the Medal for Gallantry in 07. He's been with the Commandos in this high-pressure environment for some time now. Are there any signs of him slowing down? Any indication of him moving on to a safer or different line of work? No, definitely not. Uh, Cameron worked in reverse, to be honest, that... Cameron came through the rank as a corporal and then obviously, um, sorry, a lance corporal, then into the rank of corporal. And he remained with that rank for quite a few years, even though he was pushed to become a sergeant, that uh, he knew in his own mind that if he took the rank of sergeant, there was every chance that he would be taken from the battlefield and would be used in other areas. And that certainly wasn't what he wanted. And it was only towards the very, very end that he actually started his, uh, his sergeant's course. But he knew too that that last tour was going to be his last. So promotion was obviously the next thing, but and it wasn't going to interfere with the fact that uh, he would uh, be restricted to go onto the front line because there wasn't going to be a front line for him. 
and I guess he's 26 when he won the medal for gallantry. So still peak youth, peak fitness and wanting to serve his country in that capacity as long as he can, while he can. Oh, he certainly was. And um, I, I think that that word iconic has been used a number of times. And um, from the information that we've got uh, from soldiers who served with him on many, many different different deployments, uh, said the same thing, that, um, that Cameron was always up for a good scrap. And um, I think probably that was where he seen his strength. He uh, rose to a team commander, and that was through the leadership that he displayed that but um, a lot of the hard jobs got done and, and we're two commandos uh, known as the, the door kickers. They're at the very, very sharp end of the fighting and do all the heavy lifting. So he was in his environment and uh, in that type of workload and he never looked like he was going to slow down. Even though he was um, uh, roughly 100 kilos and six foot four, um, he didn't probably have the body of a soldier that jumps out of a helicopter or parachutes. Uh, but yeah, his body was slowly, slowly breaking down. And um, I think that's why he was uh, feeling the pinch. And that's why he was happy to, to start the sergeant's course. And if that meant uh, coming off the front line, well, so be it. Can you describe when you first learned of Cameron's death? Uh, that's very vivid. It's uh, it's stamped in our minds. It's uh, it was a Saturday night. The rugby was on. Australia was playing a test match against something, and I was just watching it in the bedroom. And the knock came at the door, and, and Kay happened to get to the door before I did. And um, we knew uh, from previous experience talking to Cameron uh, what to expect, that uh, if he was injured severely, as a family, we would receive a phone call notifying us of that. If he was to be killed, uh, you would have two or three army people would uh, come to the home and they would advise you before it's made public. So he said that if you hear of a soldier that's been killed in the field, it's not me. So the doorbell rang that particular night. Kay answered the door and there was three soldiers there uh, with their hats in their hand and she knew, just like I did, that uh, he'd been killed. And I imagine the days that followed were very long as the public is gradually informed. And there's the difficulties of funeral arrangements, the body coming back home and defense wanting to juggle the media the right way because Cameron was, for special forces at least, well known. Yeah, look, it was a very long process. It was, uh, as a matter of fact, I think there was three services and that didn't include the service in Afghanistan um, leaving the ramp service there. We had a service at the Richmond when his body arrived in Australia. We had a service two days later at Two Commando in Sydney and eventually the body was brought home to Queensland and we had the final service which we buried Cameron in uh, Queensland. So it was a long process. It was a process that uh, the army machine rolled in and took control of most things and uh, we had minders basically 24-7. Uh, we had them probably for two to three weeks after that and we were initially told people stayed with us just to make sure we were okay and uh, yeah so that was a pretty horrific period for us. It's amazing though to have that kind of network in that period. I'm young, I'm childless, I can't possibly understand or relate to the grief you would have gone through at that time. Look, to be honest with you, we have a lot of people say that they understand and they say that uh, with respect and they um, 
they think they're saying the right thing, but look, um, we acknowledge that, we smile and we thank them for their kind words, but deep down we know that they don't really know and only the only people who do know are, are parents who have lost a daughter or have lost a son. It's not the way it should work. It's The parents should die before the child, so it's a very unique type situation and unless you've been through it as a parent, you really don't know the pain that, uh, that parents do suffer. Cameron passes in June 2013, and it's then in February 2014 he's awarded the Victoria Cross for Australia. Cameron is the 100th Australian to receive a Victoria Cross, the fourth to receive specifically the Victoria Cross for Australia, and of those four, the only person to receive it posthumously. When did you first learn that the award was in the works? That's a very interesting story, and if I could just take it back a fraction, was that uh, when we were down in Canberra, we had a number of people around us and I can distinctly remember sitting with Brendan Nelson at the time and we were he was reassuring us that, you know, the War Memorial were going to do everything to make things a lot easier and he said uh, words along the lines of there's more to come with this than, uh, than what you know at the moment and at that point our minds were still very numb. We, we were acknowledging people but we weren't really listening, we weren't comprehending, we weren't taking things in. So we really weren't, wasn't sure what he was actually getting at and then we had a call uh, from Army and it was the Chief of Army and he was asking whether he could... Uh come and see us at our home and of course naturally we agreed and uh, we thought well yep he's coming in two days what's he coming for you know we thought well he can't give us any bad news because we've already got that chief of army normally only comes if he's bringing something significant some sort of award possibly or something that's very personal to be told but normally that would be handled within the regiment so we started to put two to two together and we started to pick up on what people were saying and it was only then, about a day out, we thought maybe he's coming to offer Cameron a Victoria Cross. And as it turned out, the doorbell rang on that morning and there was the chief, uh, a chief of army, uh, which was David Morrison at the time, and uh, his age, they came in, they sat down, and they were very quick to point out that they were here to see whether the Baird family would accept a Victoria Cross on behalf of Cameron. And I think that when those words come out, we were in two minds. We were, we were firstly, we were a little bit shocked, even though we were anticipating something like that may have come about. Uh, but when it did come about, well, what were we going to do? We'd already decided that uh, we'd taken consideration everything, if that was the case. And, and we knew that Cameron had knocked back the medal for gallantry and, and the reasons he'd knocked it back. Then we thought long and hard and we thought, well, two commando on its 62, 63 years of its history does not have a victory across recipient so once again we thought well we're taking this not just for Cameron we're taking it for the team we're taking it for the reg for the company and we're taking it for the regiment so we actually accepted uh, the uh, chief of army's uh, offer and it was decided then and then that uh, we would uh, be flying to uh, Canberra where uh, Tony Abbott would meet us privately uh, and he would make the announcement on the floor of parliament that uh, Cameron was going to be Australia's 100th and um, Victoria Cross was going to be awarded to him. That particular day that we went to Canberra or the day that uh, the day before when uh, we were told that uh, the Victoria Cross and we accepted it, it was all hush-hush. We couldn't tell anybody. We couldn't tell any uh, relations. Uh, it had to be kept secret so that the Prime Minister could make the announcement. So that morning, uh, a, a big car turns up and we're all piled into the car and we drive off down to the Coolangatta Airport there and we don't go to the main part. We go in through this big hangar and we approach it and 
these two guys opened the door up. It was something like out of a James Bond episode. We, we drive through and we go right through this hangar. We come out the other side and there is the Prime Minister's private jet. The engines are, uh, are, are running. It's just waiting for us to get out of this vehicle. We get out of the vehicle, we get in the plane, our luggage is put in the plane. The door goes up and the plane takes off almost within five minutes. We arrive in, um, in Canberra. We have a meeting with uh, Mr Abbott in his office and about a half an hour later in Parliament, he at 11 o'clock he calls uh, a, a special closure and he wants to make the announcement which he does which is that uh, Cameron is the 100th Victoria Cross for Australia. I vividly remember the reading of that announcement by Tony Abbott, Prime Minister at the time. It was a very powerful, very moving day and I think most Australians would recall that day if they'd had the news on and would have had similar feelings that I do. Yeah, look, there was a lot of feeling that day and I think probably um, from us being on the inside and hearing the story of what happened down at Two Commando that particular day that uh, the soldiers and uh, were called into this rather large building in front of a TV and they at that point knew nothing. And when the announcement was made, apparently the place shook uh, and I think that was just respect that uh, one of their own had uh, received a Victoria Cross. And how does Brendan react to all of this? Of course, he grieves with you and Kay in the months and years that follow, but I can imagine a lot of pride for his brother's achievement and recognition. Uh, yes, Brendan is a um, very much a, an independent person and um, he likes his privacy and so this was something extremely foreign to him. He was very shaken because they were very close. It took a few days to settle in and uh, to, uh, in his mind that this had actually happened and, and to accept that his brother wasn't going to be coming through that door ever again. And I think uh, in Brendan's own way, he uh, was strong. Uh, he took the lead on behalf of the family. He knew that uh, both his mother and father at that stage were pretty much shook up and probably couldn't speak the way they would like to speak. So he took that upon himself to, even though he was feeling the pinch and feeling uh, the grief, he took it upon himself to be the spokesperson um, for the family. And he spoke uh, down at the press after the uh, Prime Minister announced that. So Brendan now is uh, in a situation where is it of acceptance, but having said that, I think it's deeply, he's still very much affected by it, as, as we all are, and, and we don't see any um, time frame on that. We see light at the end of the tunnel, but we don't know whether we're ever, when and if we're going to get to that end of the, that, that light. And so we all struggle in our own little way. And uh, as strong as what you want to be as a family unit, it is very hard to deal with. And I think Brendan probably sheds a tear like the rest of us, but he does that in private. Well, Doug, I have to say, I think the decision you all made to accept the Victoria Cross was incredibly noble and self-sacrificing. Our other three Victoria Cross for Australia recipients, Mark Donaldson, Ben Robert-Smith, Daniel Kieran, We've used that word iconic, and they are icons. They're public figures, speaking and appearing at all kinds of functions. You and Kay represent Cameron in that respect. Rather than being able to grieve amongst yourselves and close friends, you're in the public spotlight a lot, and there's this kind of unique pressure on you. Did you fully comprehend what you were putting your hand up for, in a way? when you both chose to accept this award on Cameron's behalf? No, in the short answer, no, we didn't. We felt that uh, by accepting the award, it was, uh, as I said earlier, it was recognition uh, for the regiment, the uh, the company and his particular team. Um, but we also knew that uh, 
with the Victoria Cross uh, comes some a fair amount of commitment to uh, to do certain things. Uh, we had an option right from the very start that we could have decided to shut the door and, and do absolutely nothing. Uh, but we felt that probably that's not what Cameron would want us to do. We had an opportunity to be able to initially speak about Cameron and uh, our, our feelings and it was seen as a little bit of therapy and it certainly helped us a hell of a lot. I think as time went on that we, we felt that we had an obligation to fulfil some of the obligations of the Victoria Cross and uh, although we're not a living recipient of it, you know, we didn't do the deed that Cameron did do but uh, we now speak on his behalf and it's been absolutely um, enormous the response we get from the general public that um, they feel as though we've done the right thing and uh, the things we now talk about is not centrally on Cameron it's 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 about the regiment it's about what the sacrifices they've made um, they're the highest decorated regiment in, in our army over the last 10 years but they've suffered uh, enormously they've had the most killed in action they've lost uh, uh, many good soldiers they've had over 200 seriously wounded and uh, we now see the the regiment suffer for their actions and we're able to speak about that we're able to raise some money to help him out so uh, yeah it's very very different tell me about cam's cause look cam's cause is a um is a great little institution and and i use the word little because um you'll understand when i finish uh, telling this story that uh it came about that um, cameron's grade six primary school teacher happened to be shopping one morning and bumped into an old schoolmate of cameron's that he taught at the same time and one thing led to another and they said well look why don't we sort of like get, you know, a few guys together and we'll see if we can sort of like raise a couple of, you know, thousand dollars or whatever it may have been. So we can put that to a charity which Cameron had done a lot of work for in the in the past. So they got together and they thought, well, okay, realistically, if we can get 100 people, if we can raise $5,000, that will be a, an absolute great effort. As it turned out, that particular first function, uh, they had to close the doors at the venue with 275 because it couldn't fit any more in. Instead of raising $5,000, they raised in excess of $35,000, of which they gave uh, the Commando Welfare Trust within 48 hours of that uh, raising that money. They donated $30,000, which was the biggest individual donation to Commando Welfare Trust for probably two years. So the charity, that was the start of the charity and the charity has now got four members. It's, uh, it consists of uh, Mr Andrew Harrison, which is the grade six primary school teacher, Chris Dyer, great friend Rick uh, Green and uh, Dan Carroll. And uh, all these four people are completely volunteers. They do all the work and do not take one red cent. They pay their own way when they go to a function and uh, that's why Cam's cause is, is small, but it's uh, it comes from the heart and we're now able to generate regular money through donations, through functions, through merchandise to look after the two commando soldiers that have served and are suffering not just mental but physical uh, injury. And Cam's cause supplies little things like a canoe or some fishing rods or pays for accommodation for soldiers to go away for a weekend somewhere and camp on the river. The soldier then feels a lot more relaxed and sometimes he speaks and he tells the problem that he's got so it opens it up we are able to um, supply some money to have professionals come along to speak to those soldiers and uh, we have a situation now whereas within two commando itself they have a, a wellness room which has a number of exercise machines which uh, help 
those who are recovering from wounds and there's drink machines and there's a lot of other little personal things in there which uh, CAMS Cause has been able to supply and from that point of view we're, we're working extremely hard to make sure that soldiers that do come back that are looked after that do have problems. So that's what CAMS Cause is about. Doing all this hard work with CAMS Cause and the public speaking and the book, which I'll get to in a moment, are you still finding that therapeutic or are you looking beyond that and just focusing on the end of the tunnel? No, look, to be honest with you, I, um, I'm finding that uh, by talking about it, it's certainly helpful for myself. I can't speak for my wife or my other son, uh, but it's how I, personally, um, how I personally view it. It's certainly helpful, but I think at the end of the day... Uh, there will be a line drawn in the sand. Uh, we just can't continue at the rate and the pace we're going at the moment. Um, we're not young anymore. Uh, we realise there's a lot more work to be done, but until we can get ourselves into a, a far better uh, position, we'll keep going as best we can and uh, we'll do what's necessary to help others, as what Cameron would want. And Cameron's legacy has been further solidified with the release in October 2017 of a book. The Commando, The Life and Death of Cameron Baird, VC, MG. Can you tell me a bit more about the book and your involvement in it? Yeah, look, the book's been a long-term project that um, not long after uh, it was announced that Cameron was uh, the 100th uh, Victoria Cross recipient, that some offers started to come in in regard to doing a book, and that was far, far too early for us to even consider. But over the years, those uh, that offers come from three to probably about seven. So we, as a family, sat down and we decided that, you know, there may be an opportunity now that we're a better understanding of things and we're more in a better space that this is possibly the time to do it. It was uh, a great opportunity not just to tell Cameron's story because there was people that Cameron went to school with had no idea what he did in the army and there was guys that he served with in the army that had no idea what he did in his private life prior to joining the army. So we've seen this as a great opportunity to be able to speak and to tell Cameron's story right from his birth in Tasmania. But we also seen it as an opportunity to be able to tell the story of two commandos. So the book itself, although it's called The Commando and it's the life and death of uh, Cameron Baird, VCMG, the thrust of the whole thing is the sharing between um, Cameron Baird uh, made two commando and two commando made Cameron Baird. So we see it as a, a split and um, we're very satisfied with the book and we hope people will buy it and support it because the money raised from there will eventually trickle its way down to our, uh, our soldiers. Well, Doug, I've met a lot of men and women through the course of doing this podcast that I find an inspiration. Cam's story is obviously inspiring, but you and Kay never put on the uniform, yet you're doing so much not just to remember your son privately, but to share his memory with the public and to use his award, his Victoria Cross, as a platform, as you've described, for the benefit of 2nd Commando Regiment. It's incredible, and I admire you greatly. Thank you for talking about this subject so openly and for coming on the podcast to speak with me today. Look, thank you very much for your time and uh, it's very much appreciated by the family and uh, thanks at times doesn't seem enough, but that's all we can offer. So thank you very kindly. It was an honour to speak with Doug about his son. The biography about Cameron, The Commando, is by Ben McKelvey and published by Hachette. You can contact us about this episode by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. 
Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening and, as always, lest we forget. I rise to solemnly inform the House in the presence of family and our military chiefs that the 100th Victoria Cross has been awarded to an Australian. Uh, This award is to the late Corporal Cameron Baird, already an iconic figure in our army who had earlier received the Medal of Gallantry. As the citation reads, his Victoria Cross is for most conspicuous acts of valour, extreme devotion to duty, and ultimate self-sacrifice at Gorchak village in Uruzgan province, Afghanistan, as a commando team leader. He was on his fifth special forces tour when he was killed in the action for which he was awarded the Victoria Cross. On the 22nd of June last year, in the first phase of the engagement, Corporal Baird and his team came under heavy fire on three separate occasions from well-prepared enemy positions. In the initial encounter, six enemy combatants were killed and weapons caches were captured. In subsequent encounters, Corporal Baird charged enemy positions and neutralised them with grenade and rifle fire. By drawing fire on himself repeatedly, he enabled other members of his team to regain the initiative. In the second phase of the engagement, Corporal Baird then led an assault on an enemy-held compound. On three separate occasions, under heavy fire, he forced the door of a building. Twice he was forced to withdraw, to reload, and then to clear his rifle. For the third time, he entered the building, again drawing fire away from his comrades, who were able to secure the objective. Tragically, he was killed in this final assault. Madam Speaker, words can hardly do justice to the chaos, confusion and courage that were evident that day. Today we grieve with Cameron Baird's parents, Doug and Kay, his brother Brendan and his nephews Riley and Max. You have lost a son, a brother, an uncle. Our country has lost a citizen, a soldier, a hero. Thank you.